but I, I was praying that God would give somebody a picture this morning or a word while I was worshipping in the second song. And uh, and then I had a picture of a, a big door. And I don't normally get that many pictures, but um, God answered the prayer through me. <laughs> it was one of those doors that you get on a, a stately home or a, a castle, you know, the, the really solid, thick door with all the stud work on it, the iron work on it, and it goes to a point at the top. So it's a really, really substantial door. And, and I saw the door, and then I started thinking, well, what does that mean? And then I started trying to bring interpretation to it. And uh, that's a bit dangerous, isn't it? Because then you start putting your own interpretation. But I thought, well, maybe, you know, if God opens a door, no one can shut it. Maybe that's what. And, and I thought, no, that's me making that up. And I felt really strongly led to Revelation 319, well, the verse that is in there, verse, well, 20. Here I am, Jesus says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And and I really felt that God was saying to somebody this morning that it's your job to open the door. And you you might be longing for God to, to work in your life or work in a situation or to know him. And, and God is saying, you need to open the door. He won't do that. He wants you to open it. And that door might seem really strong and, and thick and, and so substantial to you that you think, well, I can't even open it. <laughs> you can. You can. You just need to have the faith and the courage to open the door. And let God in. So turning to Luke 19, verse 1, the story of Zacchaeus. This is written by Dr. Luke. And uh, Luke wrote a biography of Jesus, and that's what we have in the Bible. So let's read Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Amen. John, if you'd like to come and I'll pray for you. It's great to have you with us this morning, John. Lord, I thank you for John and I pray, Father, that you would speak through him. Pray for your Holy Spirit to come and take his lips and to speak through them. Lord, that you would take 
your heart, Father, and, and that your heart would come through as John speaks. Lord, that we might not only hear what you've got to say, but feel it, and that we might experience it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, great to be with you this morning. I don't know what your childhood was like, obviously. Maybe it was good. Uh, maybe it was bad. Maybe you had those moments which were really quite special. I guess at best our childhood is those moments that are carefree, when the whole world really revolves around you ultimately, doesn't it? And you have those moments which are just full of that sense of achievement. For me, those sense of achievements mainly revolved around Lego building. That was my area of achievement. I remember one particular Christmas day where actually I'd been fortunate. I think my parents had shut me up. Given, my, them, given me my Lego a day early on Christmas Eve. I built this beautiful model. Christmas morning in church. My father was actually leading the service and he said, who would like to come and show us their Christmas presents? Oh, my moment of glory. I walk up the aisle, I fall over, smash the Lego everywhere. It was the end of it. A lot of prayer for that one over the years. Anyway, um, but Lego was important to me. But I also recognise that for some of us, maybe our childhood was not good. Maybe actually horrific memories as well. And I guess that somewhere along the lines, all of these things sort of come into that mix which makes us who we are. For me personally, I would say honestly, my teenage years were the best. I loved my teenage years. I was incredibly privileged too. So I was in church at the time of the 1980s when Shine, Jesus, Shine was number one. Yeah, okay. Now, if if you're new to church and this doesn't mean anything to you, go home, get on YouTube, find Shine, Jesus, Shine and know what we endured for many years, okay? Have a look at that one. That sort of thing is out there. But as part of uh, following Jesus for me, I had the privilege in the 80s of being part of a band and we brought a lot of youth worship and and lively worship, a lot of the Shine Jesus Shine sort of stuff, into a number of churches. And uh, one of my highlights, because I wasn't born too far from here, if we could have the slides up, thank you, if we can go to the next one. Uh, One of my highlights was that uh, I was actually in Redruth, was where I was born and grew up, and we got to play quite round uh, most of Cornwall, really. And recognise this one? Uh, Newquay, okay? Uh, Newquay, probably doctored by the tourist board, to be honest, because I've never seen the sea quite that blue up there. But anyway, Newquay. <laughs> and uh, I had this amazing experience. We used to play guitar in the band, and we used to go, you know, shine, Jesus, shine, wherever we were gigging at the time. And one day, we got to play on the seafront at Newquay in the bandstand. I don't even know if there is still a bandstand in the front of Newquay, but there was. And we were there in this bandstand and all the tourists were arriving. It was a Saturday, so they were all arriving in their hotels. Out they came. We were shining Jesus, shining on the front of New Key Front. I was a pop star for Jesus. It was really special. But then I also had some amazing experiences. The next slide will show. And this is St. Martin's on the Isles of Scilly. Ah, oh, that little bit of heaven, which is the Isles of Scilly, in my humble opinion. I had the privilege as a teenager of going over there for four youth camps, one year after the other and camping in the little school there, supporting one of the youth groups on St. Mary's on the main island. And there was a very special evening there, where one night I left all the other young people behind, and I went out to basically a shot just up the road from here. And I looked out over the sea. And we'd been on this youth camp. God was doing great stuff among us, you know, those really holy moments. And I was just like, God, this is it. I'm all right. You're all right. Me and you are all right. Whatever you have for us, God, I'm up for it. I'm 17 years old. I'm looking out over probably one of the most beautiful places in this country at least. 
God and me are all right. Anywhere he calls me, whatever he calls me to, I'm up for it. And in many ways, what I glimpsed then when I was 17 is a bit like what Jesus called his disciples to. And this next little bit will show that. You see, when Jesus met those disciples, they just abandoned everything. They pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. They go anywhere for this Jesus because ultimately it's better than anything that's come before. Once they've met him, and actually they know very little about this bloke at this point, they abandon everything. They go for it. It's what it's all about, whatever that might be. And you know, Jesus endorses this as well, and he says this. He says this. (laughs) He says... He didn't have a stutter as far as I'm aware, but anyway, he said this. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So Jesus says, if you come to me in wild abandon and give me everything, then you get everything in return. You get everything in return. It's this call to reckless discipleship. It's that call to let Jesus take complete control of everything that we have, to abandon everything and go on this greatest adventure with him. This call to be reckless for Jesus is one that echoes right down throughout Scripture, but we have a bit of a problem with that. And this will illustrate it. You know, so often in the world we live in today, in today's society, then actually recklessness is seen as irresponsible, isn't it? So, you know, along with building my Lego camps, I used to love, Lego models rather, I used to love building camps in one of the woods nearby where we used to live. But now what would we say? Well, don't go in the woods. You don't know who's going to be in the woods. We walk our children to school so much to keep them safe. We do everything with this idea that we're safe. Alpha and safety, you know? I'm probably too close to the stage front at this point, you know? (laughs) Everything keeps us safe. And then we get this echo from Scripture where Jesus says, come on, follow me, that reckless abandon that might come. And I guess the way that we contain our children is sometimes the way we contain our dreams as well, isn't it? So while Jesus calls us to be reckless and follow him wherever it might mean, we might struggle with that a bit as well. When I went to college, I had the privilege of being at a college that had the Alistair Hardy Research Centre nearby. Has anybody ever heard of that? No, nobody's ever heard of that. But anyway, I just thought I'd mention it. The Alistair Hardy Research Centre. was a chap called Alistair Hardy and he researched Christian spirituality. So he researched particularly what children thought when they saw God. And he looked particularly at some of these, which are pictures of Jesus, of faith, of things of God, as children would have drawn them. And Alistair Hardy did all these research and looked at them. You may have heard the story of the little boy in Sunday school. And the Sunday school teacher says, oh, free play today. You draw whatever you like. So the little lad makes his drawing. The Sunday school teacher goes over to him and he says, oh, Johnny, that's that's awesome. What have you drawn? He says, I've drawn God. Sunday school teacher says to him, well, Johnny, I don't think anybody's ever seen God. And Johnny goes, well, they have now. (laughs) And more seriously, Alistair Hardy recognised that as he looked at these pictures of God that children had drawn, beautiful detail, beautiful sort of understanding of what it meant, But you know the saddest part of his research? As those children got older, the pictures conformed more and more to the point where actually they said nothing whatsoever by the time they reached their early teens. You see, there's something about this recklessness that we sort of want to leave behind. It's like rules take over and begin to dominate. I have the privilege back in Salisbury of running our Alpha course. 
And the privilege of leading Alpha is that I talk so often about it's not about rules, it's about relationship. Well, that's about three of us that know it, all right? <laughs> it's not about rules, it's about relationship. But is it? Because, you know, we start with that recklessness of Jesus says, come follow me, it's all about me, follow me. And we go, yes, Lord, we're up for it. And then maybe the rules start to take over and those childhood images become a little bit more conforming and we become a little bit more to that point where actually, well, actually, isn't life just a little bit more complicated as well? You know, in many ways, as we start to grow up in Christ and know him better, so we leave those childhood bits behind and we leave those teenage years behind and we say, well, that's great because we're making progress. We've known Jesus longer, so therefore we must be making progress. Or actually, maybe we're just conforming more to what might be a second-rate image of what it is to follow him. But like teenagers, particularly if you are one here this morning, sorry, parents, I'm going to say this, and I've got teenagers myself, shouldn't teenagers have that opportunity to experiment, to have that joy, as I did as a teenager, of playing Shine, Jesus, Shine, probably with the wrong chords on the front of Nuki Seafront. But didn't it change my life? Because people trusted me with responsibility. So like teenagers, we should be prepared, with Jesus' help, to take risks, to explore the challenges, to discover our giftings. And ultimately, churches should be a place where mistakes are made and celebrated because it's about taking risks. It's about growing, and actually, where those risks are taken, and even where mistakes are made, it's a sign of growth. Anybody recognize this one? Yeah? Anybody know why it's called WD40? You are absolutely right, sir, and do you know what? You're the second person ever I've met who knew what that was. Yeah. Very good. Gold star later. WD40. It stands for Water Displacement 40. Why does it stand for Water Displacement 40? Particularly, as the gentleman said, you're absolutely right. There were 39 attempts that came before. which never worked. And then they got it right at last. WD-40. So they didn't throw out what had come before, but they celebrated by calling it WD-40. Sounds a lot better than water displacement theory or something, doesn't it? (laughs) WD-40. You see, it celebrates the risks and the experiments that had gone before. And didn't they have to make a fortune out of those risk-taking as well? Still selling today. You see, as Christian believers, then risk-taking should be part of the package. We sing it, we talk about it, but actually the call is to take it as well. Risk-taking should be part of the package. And that brings us nicely to Zacchaeus, as John read for us, the little man who took a big risk. I like this man for a number of reasons. You can work those out as I keep talking. You see, Jesus is passing through Jericho and the resident chief tax collectors heard about him, a man called Zacchaeus. In his enthusiasm, despite his vertical challenges, he runs and he climbs up a tree. He's so determined to see this man Jesus as he passes through. And you know what's so amazing about this story? Out of all the people in the crowd, and let's face it, there would have been hundreds of people in this crowd. Out of all these people, Jesus says this, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. You see, out of all those hundreds of peoples in the crowd, Jesus calls one person by name. And Zacchaeus knows it. 
He's up a tree, but Jesus spots him there and calls him by name. And what does Jesus want to do? Well, he wants to come for a cup of tea or whatever the first century Jewish equivalent was, doesn't he? See how natural it is. Jesus calls him and he just says, I just want to come home. I just want to come and chat with you. You know, one of the joys of being a church leader is that you get those moments where people come to you, generally just before you lead a service rather than afterwards. And they always say something along the lines like this, and I'm sure it doesn't happen here, but something like, I just need to talk to you about the worship. Always about three to four minutes before we start a service. And then they mutter these immortal lines, because a few of us have got some concerns about the worship. Now, this is honest truth, folks. Somebody came to me a couple of months ago in Salisbury and said, we've got some concerns about the worship. Now, whenever somebody says that to me, I always say, well, name the other people as well. And this bloke went, well, actually, it's my wife. And that was it. (laughs) Genuinely true. (laughs) Genuinely true. Anyway, moving on. If you've got that problem with mutterings and that sort of thing, then actually it happened in the first century as well. So Jesus says to Zacchaeus, let's go home for tea. And what do the crowd do? They mutter. They get a group together, not just their wives, and go, oh my goodness, what's he doing? He's going to a tax collector's for tea. Why are they not impressed? Because you see, Jesus is breaking the rules. He's breaking the social norms. There's a wild, reckless living on Jesus' part there. Stuff the rules. This is about people. This is about people knowing the wonderful salvation that he brings. He's going to go and have a cup of tea with a sinner. And look at the impact of this encounter. This is what verse 8 says. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. I don't know if you noticed when John read the passage, but at no point did Jesus say, Zacchaeus, follow me. At no point did he say, Zacchaeus, if you'd just like to come to the front and kneel and pray. At no point did he say if he'd just like to do an alpha course. He just went to this bloke's house for tea and it's enough for Zacchaeus to go, bang, life is changed. Life is transformed. Like those first disciples, like a little fellow on the Isles of Scilly, he knew the presence of Jesus and he knew the difference it called him to make. And that response is pretty radical actually because by Old Testament rules, he would have to have given 20% extra as a fine, if you like, for the money that he'd taken. He doesn't do 20%. He says four times. That's 400%. In other words, Zacchaeus gives his all. It is his Isles of Silly moment. It's his moment where he and God are all right, and whatever you've got for me, Jesus, I'm up for it. And it makes an immediate difference to the way he lives, and an immediate difference to the way he reacts to his neighbours and those around him. Because he has that moment where he and God are all right, and so anything is possible. But you know, there's actually two types of reckless discipleship in this passage. Firstly, we see that in Jesus as well, because Jesus modelled it. Jesus, in talking to a tax collector, breaks all the social norms. But this is Jesus who touched those with leprosy, who broke the Sabbath, who forgave sinners, and now has a cup of tea with a tax collector. 
And again, sometimes we just like to shape Jesus so nicely and smooth him up so nicely that actually we make it all too proper and all too right. Because actually this is a Jesus who looks at whatever messy situation you're in and whatever messy situation I'm in and says, I want to come in. I want to come and have my tea with you. And, you know, I find great reassurance in that, that whatever mess we're in, whatever circumstances we think we're in that should seem so messy and maybe so distasteful and so repulsive to Jesus, yet Jesus breaks the norm and Jesus comes. And he reaches out to us. You know, sometimes we need reminding that the Christian life is more than finding Jesus. It's about following Jesus. In other words, it has implications for us. So when we sing these songs and when we make these prayers and when we make that pledge, and if you're not yet at that point this morning, you don't know Jesus yet, then can I encourage you to do so? Can I encourage you to think again as to who he is? As to the wonder of what he calls us to? Of that life of adventure, of that travelling with him into whatever our lives will contain and whatever future we hold in eternity with him. But you see, the danger is that so often we want to keep Jesus so nicely under control. Somebody once put it like this. There's a real danger that we simply follow a Jesus who is only a slightly nicer version of ourselves. Say that again. The danger is that we simply follow a Jesus who is only a slightly nicer version of ourselves. If you think about it, so often... We want to take sandpaper to the cross and make it a little decoration. So often we want to make Jesus back in a little model and just have him sit there nice and safe. But this is Jesus who calls us to that radical life of reckless discipleship. And you know, we see that in Zacchaeus as well, because not only does he abandon the social norms in order to climb a tree and see Jesus, which probably in one of those skirts would have been a bit of a challenge anyway, But then he radically changes his lifestyle as a result. Radically changes his lifestyle. And I guess if we're honest, we can all struggle with concepts like that as well. You see, this little talk is called Reckless Discipleship, which is a really nice title for a talk, isn't it? Really nice title. I was was pleased with that. I could give me some encouragement here. (laughs) But what real difference is it going to make to your life and mine? as we go into the rest of today, as we go into this week. You see, what real impact is it going to have for me and what immediate impact is it going to have for you? Because for all Jesus calls me to, I immediately think, yep, that's all very well, but what about my family? What about my mortgage? What about my income? What about my future? And then I think, darn, it was a lot easier when I was 17 years old on the Isles of Scilly. But the truth is that the same Jesus who came to me when I was 17 years old on the Isles of Scilly comes to me today a few years after that. And again, what does he say? Follow me. Come follow me. Another chap like Alistair Hardy was a guy called William James. And he too looked at religious experience, at spiritual encounters and what they looked like. William James looked at adults rather than children and he looked at thousands of adults and this was his conclusion. He said, you either end up with a dull religion or an acute faith. 
And you know, so much of the church in this country is just conforming to that dull religion. It just does church. It just does those things that are religious. And we've lost sight of that radical Jesus who comes and shouts to those disciples and they leave everything and abandon him. They abandon it to go and follow him for whatever he has for them. You know, nobody looked at the disciples and said, well, what a dull religion that is. They looked at the acute faith of early Christianity and everybody wanted to be a part of it. And if not, they reacted so strongly against it because it said something that they knew they had to respond to. And folks, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, then you're a resurrection people. We're people who are alive in Christ, aren't we? I'm quite glad that you agreed with that. If we're going to follow Jesus, then life can never be the same, but neither can death. What a hope we have. What a transforming hope we have. But you know the challenge is that that wild abandon comes not so much from here, but from here. And we can look to Zacchaeus for a great strength and great advice and great wisdom as to how we know Jesus in fullness. That is, we invite him in. Interesting that John should get that verse about the door, wouldn't it? You know that famous picture of the door? I've always let myself down, though my art degree lets me down, which I haven't got. That sort of thought of whoever painted that door. Do you remember the picture of the door? And where's the handle? It's on the inside. So Jesus stands at the door. And yet in his love, he gives us that responsibility of whether we open that door to him or not. He calls us to reckless discipleship. But he doesn't force us into that discipleship. He calls us to follow him wherever it might take us. But he doesn't force us to follow him wherever he may take us. It comes from us simply allowing him into our house for tea. It comes simply from that profound encounter when we open the door and say, Jesus, if you're there, would you come and would you show yourself to me? Because if you haven't done that this morning, can I encourage you to do so, just to ease open that door and say, Jesus, if you're there, come. Come and be true for me. got a chap in our church who's just started volunteering with us as a debt coach for CAP, Christians Against Poverty. Christians Against Poverty does amazing work with those who've got themselves in ridiculous amounts of debt, who're struggling even to live life. And we have the privilege in the recent years, just in the last 18 months, of running one for Salisbury. Frank came to me in my office a couple of months ago now. And Frank worked in telecommunications. He actually maintained uh, aerials for Vodafone and all those sort of big companies. And Frank had been working in that company for 38 years, and they were starting to put a squeeze really on what was happening, and he said he just didn't feel comfortable ethically with where that company was going. So he sat in my office, and he said, I'm thinking of changing direction, and I'm thinking that I would come and volunteer two days a week with you, and three days a week I'll work as a consultant to the telecommunications industry. He came back a few months later, and he'd left his job. He'd set himself up out on his own, and he was working for us two days a week as a cap debt relief worker. And he's still doing that today. I finished with this. Frank sat in my office and said this, and we can have the picture to go with it. He said, you know, John, and believe me, he doesn't look anything like this. (laughs) He said, you know, John, so often as Christians... We say, yes, we'll go wherever Jesus would take us. We'll do whatever he has for us. And often we can see exactly where we need to go. But we're on that trapeze. 
and were swinging from the roof. He said, and I was thinking about this, and I felt God say this to me. That so often we can be on that trapeze and we're swinging away, and that's all good. People admire anybody who gets up on the trapeze. But it's not until the trapeze artist lets go of that trapeze and leaps for the next one in midair and grabs it that the crowd goes wild and the person swinging on the trapeze becomes the acrobat. And then Frank said this to me. Do you know, so often in our Christian lives, we're actually just swinging from the rafters. But if you want to be an acrobat, you've got to take that leap. You might not know where that leap might take you. You might not know what you might be reaching out for. But unless you take that, that leap, you're actually just someone swinging from the rafters. Folks, this morning, where are you at? Are you at that point where actually you know that you're swinging from the rafters and Jesus is calling you to reach out maybe to him for the first time, to know him for yourself? Maybe even following him for a while and you just need again to, to take that leap and say, Lord, what have you got for me that's next? I don't know even, but I'm up for it, whatever you have. Or maybe this morning you know that God has called you to exactly where you are and exactly the situation you're in. And you just need that assurance that actually he's still watching. And maybe like the crowd that goes wild when the acrobat takes that leap, you need to hear that Jesus is cheering for you as well in where you're at this morning.